This episode of the Golf.com podcast is brought to you by the USGA. The USGA runs a program called Play 9 that is all about getting your golf game in without needing to play a full 18 holes and all the time that comes with that. For more information, visit usga.org play9. Hello, this is Alan Shipnuck back for another podcast for The Knockdown. Thanks, as always, for listening. I'm delighted to be joined by SI senior writer Michael Bamberger, longtime friend, collaborator, and was a big part of this Donald Trump story that we now have in this week's SI and, of course, all over golf.com and other corners of the internet. Uh, Michael, thanks for joining me. Alan, a pleasure. As always. <laughs> As always. Yes, I'm enjoying that these, these chats have become a regular thing. So we have this 12-page Trump story that's out. Um, you know Donald Trump better than any reporter on the planet based on your the time you spent together uh, doing an SI story years ago. And listeners may be aware that Michael's played, I think, nine rounds of golf with, with Trump. And how often did Donald call your house in those days? Well, there was a period where he was calling regularly, uh, nothing to do with my uh, unique charms, everything to do with the fact that I write for Sports Illustrated. Uh, we had something uh, that Donald Trump wanted, which was a good write-up in Sports Illustrated for his uh, golf courses. And uh, I felt like the Trump that I got to know in that period and the Trump that uh, we've seen more recently are sort of two different people because I found him to be a, a very accommodating person and an excellent salesman and uh and actually a lot of fun to hang out with. Uh, and uh, the bombastic part, I thought, was his, the character that he played on TV. Uh, and now, of course, you know, everyone has their own opinion um, uh, about who he is as president. But, uh, but the Trump that I got to know in private, I don't think we're seeing uh, uh, as president. But, Alan, you, you, you did all the heavy lifting on the story, and uh, it's an extremely interesting story. But let me just ask you one question right off the top here, because I'm being asked about it, and uh, whatever you say uh, will be helpful to me as well. I got a, I got a call the other day. Uh, I was visiting our son as a lifeguard at a camp, and it was a kind of a hectic day, and the reception wasn't very good. And I got a got an email on uh, on my phone, and it said, uh, "Call me, it's urgent." Blah blah blah. I read it quickly, and it said Hicks. Well, I figured it's Dan Hicks, and I figured he must have been mentioned in the story, and <laughs> and, and there must have been some sort of problem. So I called back. And I got a young woman's voice, and uh, uh, I said, oh, hi, it's uh, Michael Bamberger. Is your dad around? I mean, I was confused. <laughs> but I thought I was going Dan Hicks. And uh, and Mrs. Hicks said, no, you haven't called Dan Hicks. You called Hope Hicks, one of President Trump's, President Trump's longtime uh, uh, advisors and, and spokespeople. And uh, anyway, she was calling to complain about uh, – Two words in the story that's getting a lot of attention where uh, Donald Trump is quoted as saying that uh, the White House is a, quote, uh, real dump. Uh, Ms. Hicks told me that that was a, quote, uh, lie. And Sports Illustrated is not in the business of publishing lies. But uh, so I, I know it's not. But, Alan, maybe you can fill in the uh, the listenership about uh, about how that uh, quote got into the magazine and uh, and what it, what it means. Yeah, I had I had a conversation with Ms. Hicks as well, which was – Quite enlightening, you know the um, the confrontational and rude tone of the phone call was. Uh, they they definitely don't waste any time trying to be charming or friendly. <laughs> These people in the in the White House communications department, 
And yeah, she, she tried the same line on me, which that's a lie. I need to be retracted. And I explained to her, it's not a lie that the president said this in front of eight or nine members and staffers at Bedminster. It was his first visit to the club after he had been residing in the White House. And it was, it was a moment of candor. And someone who was part of that conversation relayed it to me. I found this person to be an extremely credible source on any number of topics. The week of the U.S. Women's Open, I heard the same story told by two or three different other sources. Um, it's, this is certainly um, a, a moment that, that's already passed into legend at Trump bed minister. And so it might be inconvenient for her boss, and she might wish she didn't say it, but it's not a lie. And, um, you know, it was a little insight into how the Trump media operation works coming out of the White House. Uh, so um, we did as a courtesy to um, the, the, the office of the president, we did put in the digital version a parenthetical statement that says uh, a White House spokesperson denies this incident take, ever took place, or I forget the exact wording, but of course it did take place, but we were just being nice by offering them their, their two cents. But yeah, that was, I, I got a similar nasty phone call. And it, it's a little insight into how the modern media works. I mean, this is a, a highly nuanced, deeply reported, seven thousand word story, and there's been a lot of um, a lot of play about one about one sentence in it. But I, I guess I guess that's how it works. But um, you know, certainly. Oh, go no, no, you go ahead. Well, I was just going to say very briefly that it's uh, it's very it's a very illustrative story because it deals with a lot of things that relate to Trump, which is. Trump has a sense of humor. He's got a sort of a wise guy, New York sense of humor. And he doesn't really think the White House is a dump. The White House is not a dump. He's comparing it to the gilded greatness of Bedminster, which is his idea of, of, of beauty. Uh, um, and he's sort of trying to be funny. But whether he's trying to be funny or not, he's the president of the United States. And people have such passionate feelings about the White House and the presidency, and it's almost like he doesn't uh, realize that everything he says now gets seen through a completely different prism. And that's why two words like that, which would normally just be, quote, Trump being Trump, now takes on a completely uh, uh, different meaning and results in the conversations that you and I had with Ms. Hicks. Well, and it, it also is an insight into he's at his most unguarded and he feels most at home at his golf clubs. You know, those are his people. And I think that's why he escapes them every chance he gets because he feels like he can just be himself. And it's mostly accommodated by those around him. Um, but of course, now some of those people like to talk to reporters and, and these things leak out. And um, But I don't think he would have said that in any other setting, really. But, you know, he feels like uh, he can take a deep breath and he's really at home now. He's at, he's at Trump bed minister and he's staying in his cottage by the pool and He's around his cronies, and um, and so yeah, it, it also gives you a little insight into why he loves to go to his golf clubs because it's where he just feels he can be himself, and it's always been that way. And and Bedminster is particularly important to him. You know, it, it's sort of the crown jewel in, in his collection. It, it's fairly close to New York City, his home base. Uh, I had, there was a passage in the story that actually we, we took out just for space, but it, it's kind of been the social hub for for Melania and, and Baron, you know, that's where they have a lot of their friends. And, um, so of, of all the places where he's just going to be one of the boys and Trump bed minister is, is really the spot. 
That's very interesting. One time I was playing uh, golf with uh, trumpet Bedminster and uh, Baron was very young at the time. He might've been, he might've been five or six would be a guess. And, uh, uh, but he came out for a hole or two with Melania and, uh, and he played a shot and he had nice athletic uh, move through the ball and, uh, and he hit it capably and, and Donald was, uh, you know, not doting on him, but he was uh, very encouraging and very appropriate. Like you would expect a dad to be very proud. And then uh, a year or two later, I saw uh, Trump and I asked him about how uh, Barron was coming along with his golf and uh, Trump said, uh, I'm so upset. He does not play golf anymore at all. All he does is, you know, play the video games, which was, you know, he, this is long before he was uh, a, a presidential uh, a candidate even. Uh, it was very telling. It was just, you know, Trump talking about uh, about his son, the way about the way any of us so would. Of course, you know, now any conversation like that would have a, there would be a te- there would be a different subtext to the uh, uh, to the whole thing. What did you learn about uh, Trump's relationship with golf? How much, uh, to what degree does he just like the game for the game's sake, and to what degree is golf an avenue for him for his for other activities and and other things on his agenda? Well, I, I think those emotions are kind of inextricably linked. You know. I, I think his love for the game is pure. You know, his his mom is Scottish, and it's it's the game of her ancestors. And he 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 learned it as a young man at a, <clears throat> of course, you know, right, Cobb's Creek in Philadelphia. When yeah. and you know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a it wasn't a, a gilded country club. It was it was just kind of a, a fun little scene. And I, I think it started out. Well, he, just a quick interruption there, please. It's a, it's a black working man's golf course. Uh, when I say black, I mean. You know, in a city that's half black, maybe in, in those days, in the late '60s, when he was playing it, I'm, I wasn't there then, but I was there ten years later. I'm guessing maybe a, a, a quarter of the players there are African American. It's a place with a lot of gambling and a lot of life, and it is not a Lottie Dot Country Club setting at all. It so happens it was designed by the same person who designed uh, Marion, which is up the street. But yes, keep, keep going. Well, I mean, and that that in itself is interesting. You know, you can imagine how. Some people come to golf and they find it staid and boring and, and they drift away. But in, in that setting, it was probably a very lively, um, passionate group of, of players out there. And it was a lot of fun. And you can imagine how he got he got sucked into it. And, um, you know, the, we've seen how much he's played just since he's been in office. I mean, Trump loves the game. You, you've you've pegged it with him. You you know how, how intense he can be and how he grinds over putts that matters and um, he, he takes pride in how far he hits it, and he likes to have the latest tailor-made gear, and he's, he's like the rest of us in, in, in those regards. But there, there's also a subtext to it where, uh, you know, he's a striver from Queens, right? You know, this is a guy who's always an outsider. And as we know, private golf clubs are a great status marker of, of the ruling class. And I think Trump always wanted to get into the Pine Valleys. He wanted to get into the Shinnecock Hills and talking to people at both of those clubs, you know, they've said, yeah, he, there's been interest on his part, but we'll never have him. You know, that's, he doesn't fit the mold. He's not old money. He's not discreet. Um, those kind of places don't want the likes of a Donald Trump. And I think that became very obvious to him uh, as, you know, you can buy your way into a lot of things, but you can't buy your way into Seminole uh, or, or places like that or Augusta National, or we can go on down the list of the places he's visited and, and he's played, but he'll never be a member. So, um What's the answer to that? You start buying your own golf clubs. You start building your own golf clubs. And that's why these places have so much meaning to them. 
it's not that they're great money makers and maybe they are, or maybe they aren't, but I, I think that it's, uh, he's now in the club and not only is he in the club, it's his club and he can run it the way he wants. And that's a powerful thing for a guy who otherwise has been kind of locked out of, of the, the, the halls of prestige in golf. And so, um, and then I, I think it, it's flown from there. Once you own these golf clubs, then you want the recognition by the Royal and Ancient or the USGA. You, you need them to give that stamp of approval that, yes, this is a great course. And yes, we want you to hold the championship here. And so then you get into the courting phase of, of trying to get a US Open or a British Open or a Ryder Cup. And, and Trump's been going hard at that for more than a decade. And it's starting to pay off. You know, Obviously, we just saw the US Women's Open at Bedminster. The PGA Championship is, is going to be there in, in 2022. Um, you know, the, the, uh, the, um, he's playing the long game, trying to get a Ryder Cup. There's talk about a, an open championship going to Turnberry, even as complicating as his presence might be. So, um, you know, the, you can kind of chart his evolution and his, his, how much he needs golf as a validation in, uh, throughout his, his life and the different phases and, and what he's done publicly. Well, that yeah, that all makes complete sense. I, I would add to that that he uh, he is a very passionate uh, uh, sports fan. He can speak as knowledgeably as he can speak about golf. He can speak just as knowledgeably about uh, NFL football and, uh, and and boxing in particular, and, and many other sports as well. But but I would say those would be uh, those would be his uh, big three. Big three. Uh, ours is a culture that, of course, uh, values winning and, and losing. We uh, like probably no other culture uh, before us, uh, uh, American life in uh, in this 21st century. Uh, and Trump is all about winning, and uh, and and I think that was one of his great interests in politics. Uh, if I get into politics, can I win? You know, what what is the definition of who wins and who loses? And I think Donald very much keeps track of winning by uh, the accumulation of things, uh, uh, material things. Uh, money and golf courses, but but golf itself is a tremendous place uh, to uh, to to rack up a bunch of wins. You can have wins of the clubs that uh, you belong to, the club championships that you that you win at those clubs, uh, whether you uh, whether you win that day uh, on the golf course or not. And of course, the beauty of golf when it's played properly is it's a, in theory or not really in theory, in practice, it's a level playing field. Two people go out, whether playing a handicap match or, or otherwise, and you can determine a, a winner and a loser. And I think one of the things that we're seeing and why he can't let go of this election, he won the election he, on January 20th at high noon. He was inaugurated as president of the United States. So he won, but he feels like the win wasn't legitimate enough maybe and that's why he can't sort of seem to let go of the results of the win i'm not really sure what, what's going on there but golf is another place for him to exercise uh, uh, uh winning and losing well i mean this is in the story and I, I think it's one of the most thoughtful things he's ever said certainly since he's he's gotten into politics when he had that sit down with the new york times and he made the analogy winning the electoral college versus a popular vote and in and he was asked about that. He he said it's like the difference between stroke play and match play, and to me that made perfect sense. You know, uh, you and I can. Oh, he nailed go, it. It's exactly right. He nailed it. You and I can go out and I can shoot seventy seven and you can shoot eighty, but you can still beat me in match play if you win the holes. And uh, you know, and there's different ways to make a number, right? And so, I I thought that was a beautiful answer, but it's also funny. That's right where his mind went. 
in trying to explain it. I mean, the, the percentage of people are actually going to understand what he's saying there is, you know, 0 0.01. But, uh, but you know, he was actually right. He is. He's very smart uh, in, in, in certain ways. I mean, that's pretentious for me to say, but uh, I think once you're the president of the United States, uh, that comes to the territory that people are going to uh, constantly judge you. I mean, I find myself judging Trump now in ways I never did before he became a, quote, politician. Uh, well, Michael, uh, let, me, let me ask you this. Well, first of all, let me say this. He was talking to Tom Friedman in the room at that moment because uh, if you go through the whole transcript, they have a whole digression about golf. There's a room of, you know, two dozen New York Times staffer and, and Trump and Friedman are just talking golf. And it's really funny, but that's that comfort. You know, there's one guy in that room who he knows, loves golf, who's written about golf, who he's, he's seen on the golf course. And that that's where he went. And even that is telling. But what is the experience like of playing golf with Trump? Because you've done it more than anyone on the planet who's part of the, the news media. And what 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 was your experience? And was it enjoyable? And give us a little a little sense of what it's like to be uh, you know out out there on the grass with him. Sure. And and before I do that, let's just go back to something you just said. Tom Friedman is a Pulitzer Prize winning, distinguished author and longtime columnist for the New York Times. He happens to be a member of Cypress Point and Seminole. He caddied in the 1968 uh, U.S. Open for Chichi Rodriguez, the Hazeltine. He's got a rich, rich history in golf. But m most people wouldn't know that. But Trump, of course, knows that. And, and, and many people in golf wouldn't know that. But the point here being is that Trump found a way to connect to, to, uh, to Friedman on an intensely personal level. And that is one of the things that makes him... Uh, so effective as a human being. And uh, the reason I mention all that uh, is because it dovetails what you just asked about. What's it like to play golf with Donald Trump is he pays attention to you. He is not the bl a blowhard like he was on the TV show The, the Apprentice. Uh, he's insightful. He's engaged. He wants to know something about your life. And he's not just going through the motions. Maybe I should not using the present tense because uh, my experiences were all uh, uh, some, some years ago, long before he announced, I'd say the last time, about at least five years ago, if not more. Uh, well, I'd say about five years ago. Um, uh, he's engaged like many great salesmen are. They're trying to figure out what are your pressure points? What are your interests? And uh, so he's, uh, so he's, he was a great host and uh, very generous and fun to play with. Having said all that, um, as you know, I'm an impossible golf partner because I've got to do it my way, which is I want to walk, I want to keep score, I want to hold a little putts, I don't want a lot of chit chat. I got a long list of reasons why you know nobody wants to play golf with me. Um, having, having said that, Trump's the exact same way, except for for him, it's completely different. He wants to play fast. He wants to talk constantly. He wants to be in a golf. Well, I want to play fast too. He wants to be in a golf cart. He wants other groups to uh, spread their way. He wants to. Uh, he, uh, he wants to keep score or not keep scores. It suits him. He'll drop second balls when it suits him. Putts um, will be meaningless until he decides they're meaningful. So it's not really golf with Trump. To my definition of what golf is, is not really golf it's just another activity that looks a lot like golf and is fun but isn't really golf <laughs> yeah um i mean this is some of the passages in, in in our story that have gotten attention it is about the fact that he takes these floating mulligans and he he takes gimmies and people are using that as as a way to impugn his character when in reality 
most golfers take gimmies and a lot of golfers take floating mulligans. And, um, I, I don't think it's, it's quite the, um, the character flaw that maybe some non-golfers are making it out to be, but I, I would agree with that, Alan, until you, until you raise it to another level, which he does, which is, you know, to what degree are you deluding yourself? Uh, uh, you, you know, if you say you shot 79 and then, and then you say, Oh, Michael, you know, I, I just played band and shot 79. Well, it was kind of a newspaper 79. If people know that phrase, you know, in other words, you know, I was given a lot of putts. I took a floating ball again. The point is, you played pretty well. You're not going to you're you're not going to testify uh, and, and swear to 79. But it was a newspaper 79. But so the question with Trump and his scores is, does he actually believe that he shot the scores he's claiming to shoot? Like, you know, uh, you know, like O.J. Simpson saying, "I didn't murder those people." Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's that's a ridiculous analogy, but but it it it, it, it makes the point. And uh, I won't tell the whole long story because I've told it too many times. But, you know, at one point Trump called me and said he shot 68 at Bel Air. I don't think Trump can shoot 68 at Bel Air. He can he could possibly shoot a legit 78 at Bel Air if everything went his way. But we're talking about 68 on a tough golf course. And the score didn't uh, check out. But so now the question becomes, does he really think he shot 68? Because then you're dealing with you know, grand illusions. And and, right. and that's something different uh, altogether. Well, and then, and just, just to finish off the anecdote, you didn't, he, he was telling you that you shot 68 because he wanted it to go in, in the story you were writing. You didn't put it in the story because it didn't check out. And then next time you saw him, he was giving you a hard time about not putting the 68 in. So it, it does. And I, told, and I told him why. And then he doubled down and said, Michael, I shot 68. You shouldn't put it in the paper. That's right. Uh, yeah. uh, and I think, but I think that's one of, Look, that's very common among among a lot of uh, marketing experts. It's like you tell one story and you keep telling it over and over again until it becomes true. Uh, right. um, and he must know that I know that it's not uh, that. And I shouldn't even really say that it's not quote true. But the other person that I spoke to who was in the game would have absolutely no reason to misrepresent it where Trump would. So I mean, I would you know certainly uh, bet that he did not shoot anything like sixty eight uh, that day. Uh, but I but I do want to stress that he's. Uh, that he's fun to play with, he's personable. And uh, by the way, I've spoken to many people over the years who have played with Trump, and almost everybody has the same experience. Uh, uh, you know, Rick Riley's played with him, our former uh, our former boss uh, Jim Harry's played with him, uh, Natalie Golmbus, uh, Rory McIlroy, Ernie Els, there's any uh, Pete Bobakwa from the PGA of America, uh, Mike Davis, um, uh, Phil Mickelson. Uh, I can just think of... I'm not sure if Phil's played with him or just hung out with him on the golf course. Uh, Arnold Palmer. Uh, I, I can just think of a lot, a long list of people who have played golf with Trump and have found it to be a different kind of golf experience, but an enjoyable one. Golf and life. How do you fit one into the other? If you ask the USGA, it's pretty easy. It's called Play Nine. Nine-hole golf is time-friendly, unwind-friendly, friend-friendly, it's there's still time to pick up the kids friendly. It's after work friendly. You can even post your nine hole score and it counts toward your handicap every time. There's a lot to love about golf and when there's less time, the USGA says play nine. Learn more about nine hole options in your area by going to usga.org slash play nine today. And now back to Alan Shipnuck and Michael Bamberger. Yeah, and 
you know, it goes back to what you were saying earlier, where you had something he wanted, which was a, a story in Sports Illustrated. And I, I, you've told me this before, and um, that he started calling the house so often that your wife or kids would answer the phone, and then they'd be like, oh, God, it's Donald again. <laughs> <laughs> like, right, right. He uh, at, at that point, if I had a cell phone, I was barely using. It. I may not have even had one, and uh, which says that doesn't say how long ago it was. That tells you how resistant I was getting a cell phone. Yes, and uh, so he was calling the home phone uh, as well, and and you know, in the phone to ring at six thirty, we'd just be sitting down for dinner. Not that we're so formal this way, anyhow. And Christine would be like, "It's Donald again." And one one time, I was at my parents' uh, house. They have an apartment in New York. They live in New York City, an apartment, and. Uh, and uh, and Trump called, and, uh, and I mean, I had him on speakerphone for a while. But I mean, we spoke for an hour, and uh, and, and uh, it, I, we had lot, many, many hours and hours. I'm not exaggerating. Uh, phone conversations, and at one point, you know, he said to me that he had talked to me more than any other reporter I ever talked to. The only reason that was true was uh, we both had a genuine interest in golf, and he really, genuinely uh, loved talking about golf. And every once in a while. He'd stray into, and I could see it was hard for him to do, but, you know, if I asked him about his uh, his uh, late brother uh, who died of alcohol-related uh, issues, and uh, and he spoke with uh, with real empathy, as you would expect, about um, about losing his brother to alcoholism, what a hero he was in his life. And, uh, you know, when people say that Trump is not an introspective person, um, I'm sure that, in my experience, that would be true, but not completely true uh yeah and, and he showed areas of uh, empathy at one point I, uh, I said to him uh, uh uh donald which is what i called him then uh, now i wouldn't uh <laughs> you know you're lucky your name isn't uh, finkelstein or o'shaughnessy because it's you've got a name with all these heavy consonants and uh, it's easy to remember and it's a double entendre and uh and it just sort of rolls off the tongue uh but if it was o'shaughnessy or finkelstein uh you know it's hard to you know brand a whole business off of you know, a, a long name like that. He's like, that is a very interesting observation. And I'm like, you're joking. It's like, you haven't thought about this before. <laughs> Trump is a, is a powerful diplomatizer. But anyway, um, he was good company. <laughs> yeah. And it's something about the golf media. I was, I was just talking to a golf channel producer. He, um, he was able to get a sit down in in the Oval Office with Trump for one of their you know they're doing these documentaries uh, on all these old greats. I can't even honestly remember if it was I think if it was for Jack or it was, um, but it, it's one one of these documentaries they've rolled out and and Trump had just had some kind of cancer thing burned off his cheek and so you know it takes a long time to light these these things properly they have it all set up. And then Trump comes in, he looks, he's like, can we flip this around? You know, I don't want, I don't want this little scar to show like, well, you know, Mr. President, it would take too long to, uh, to, uh, redo the lighting, but we, we can just kind of clean it up in, in post-production. We can just airbrush it essentially. It's like, okay, fine. And they, they do this interview, but in, in this short period of time, he mentions it five or six times, you know, make sure you, you get this, this little, this little burn off, off of there. And they're like, we'll, we'll, we'll handle it. We'll handle it. The next morning, this producer is back in Orlando. His at eight a.m. His phone rings. It's the White House calling, saying the president wants us to remind you to you know remove this little this little scar thing uh, um, in post production. And you know that's what he went to bed thinking about. That's what he woke up thinking about. And but I think yeah. I mean the the first of all, 
the fact that the golf channel can can get him in the oval office is amazing and that he he cares so much how he's going to look on their telecast I, I think it goes to what you're saying is would he have made that effort for fox news i don't know i mean he, he probably just won't even care but who, 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 who from golf channel went in to see him well, I don't, I don't, I'm not sure if I should talk out of school because this, this was, this was a story that was told on mid fairway. And, um, so, um, I, I shall protect their identity from IRS auditors and, and others, but, um, right. And, but again, that, you know, the, these things, these things matter to him and I th- they seem like they matter the most in, in, in the context of golf. And Alan, what is your sense of Trump? golf courses and a Russian connection based on the reporting that you've done. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, we actually had ProPublica came on board at some point with, with the reporting of this story. You know, they're, they're a, a, um, they specialize in these deep dives and they have access to documents and, and know their way around courtroom filings and tax returns and stuff at, at a level that, that I just don't. And, probably none of us do it at Sports Illustrated. So they, they had been, they'd been talking with, with our executive editor, John Wertheim. And um, he said, well, we already have a Trump story going. So we, we kind of linked forces for a while and that's what they were solely focused on. And they weren't actually able to come up with the goods, which would have obviously been of great interest to a lot of readers outside of the golf world as well as within. But, um, there's there's one sentence that effect that that we put in the you know the bottom of the story because there's there's really two large purchases that Trump has made in in the realm of golf and that's Doral and that's Turnberry. Generally, he's a very astute um, discount shopper. You know, he finds these courses that are in distress, he buys them at a very low price, and he fixes them up, and and then he turns them into these you know prestige properties. And he did that with Bedminster. He did that with the L.A. course, um, you know, the one in Washington, D.C., which is actually 36 holes. There's there's a whole bunch of those. But, um, you know, Doral, which also was was bought out of some financial distress, um, that was a, that was a big purchase. And especially Turnberry, which was you know, bought from Leisure Corp, which is a Dubai based company. Um, there's I have to be careful in how I describe this person uh, again to protect uh, protect them from any blowback. But. They are they are in Trump's orbit. Um, they play at, at his golf clubs. Um, they know him personally. They know a lot of people in his inner circle. And this person has a finance background, and he was able to see a lot of the the documents related to the um, to these sales. And he feels like that you know the special prosecutor Robert Mueller is going to be very interested because. Um, this person's belief is that there were foreign banks and foreign lenders involved and which is not a big deal. I mean, that's perfectly fine for any transaction. The problem is that Trump has repeatedly denied this, uh, in, in various public statements. And so it's not that it's a big deal to take financing from a Russian bank or, uh, a Middle Eastern lender, but if you deny it over and over in public, then you might have a problem if you're the president of the United States. So, um, you know, we'll see what, what Mueller finds. I, I myself did not have access to those documents, so I, I cannot say, but th- this person did and, and feels like that if Mueller can, can, can really get his hands on it, on every document pertaining to these sales, that, um, this could be a problem for the president. So it's, it's an interesting nugget because, 
you know, Trump does not like to put his own money into these purchases. He, he kind of does everything on credit. And that, that's a perfectly fine way to build a real estate empire. But again, the sourcing on the money can be a problem when, when, when you've made various public declarations. So um, I'll, be, I'll be keenly interested to see if, if, if that goes anywhere. It's certainly possible that um, the person I spoke with um, is going to turn out to be wrong, but um, or that maybe Mueller's never going to get the, the the details he needs. But there is there is there is that that feeling that um, you know this this could be an issue. So um, that that may be a story for someone else to pursue. It, you know how 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 you can crack the code of sealed documents and and filings. Um, that's not something that I've learned on the golf beat, but there's others that have that expertise and I'm sure they're out there sniffing around as we speak. Well, and, and just a quick note on Mueller, of course, he's got so many things to his, uh, he has access to so many, he has access to so much information that of course, uh, we don't, uh, but I have, I have played two rounds of golf with the man and he's a, uh, very keen, uh, golfer. And, uh, like me, he has a, uh, in a, uh, an interest in the rules of golf and how they're applied and how they create a level playing field. And the rules of golf is a necessary starting point to the competition. Uh, if you're, if, if you're going to have a serious golf competition, now you have to have a system of rules and how they have to be uh, enforced in the role that the individual golfer plays in enforcing the role. I mean, it's all the backbone of what makes tournament golf so interesting in the first place. That's an aside to saying this guy is thorough like nobody's business i mean everybody knows that uh who's followed this guy's career at all but uh he's going to leave no stone unturned here and uh uh if trump can't fire this guy uh he's going to be uh uh it'll be very interesting to see what uh what he what he turns up having said that had it been just a few years ago had it been Mueller and uh, trump on a golf course together they probably would have both had a great time because uh (laughs) Because they both love golf, and uh, and Trump's a very accommodating uh, golf host. By the way, he's always the host. Uh, it, I, I can't think of anybody who's actually played with. I don't think I know of anybody except for people who played with him at Wingfoot, where he's a member. Uh, but almost in, in my experience of Trump, it's always been on a Trump golf course when I've tried to play with him elsewhere. If he hasn't shown interest, but anyway, um, uh, Muller and he would would could probably have been uh, enjoyed one another's company uh, on a golf course, and probably would, but. You know, now, now, of course, everything is uh, completely different. If you made a Venn diagram of people who have played golf with Donald Trump and Robert Mueller, there wouldn't be a lot of names in the middle there, Michael. So that, that's impressive. Well, it, was, it just happened since. But, uh, Alan, what is your – now, this is – there's no way you can really answer this uh, uh, except for more on instinct than anything else. But at some point – Trump will leave the presidency uh, and resume uh, his regular life. What do you think, what what role do you think golf will play in his post-presidential life? I think it's so deeply important to him. It'll it'll play a large role. And, you know, I I talked to a high-ranking person at the RNA about where Turnberry fits into this because those Tweety blokes have kind of made it clear they don't want to host an open and have Donald Trump, you know, suck the air out of it. Um, and yet Turnberry has a great history and, and to Trump's credit, they've actually improved the golf course. Um, and it's a fabulous place to have an open. They've made, they've made the hotel much better because it was pretty tired and it, it, you know, what we all remember Tom Watson nearly winning and the duel in the sun. And 
it, it's hard to think about Turnberry not hosting an open in Donald Trump's lifetime. So they said, this person who I spoke to said, we really don't want to do it while he's president. It would just be because we know he would show up because how could he stay away? And it, it's already hard enough to pull off an open. If you add that layer of security, it, it worked at Bedminster because the crowds were so small and he already had that infrastructure in place of places to stay and, and how to get around. And there's a, there's a helicopter landing spot that's already been, you know, approved by the secret service and on down the list. Turnberry has none of that. So, um, you know, his, his life in politics will probably determine when an open goes to Turnberry. And, um, but they, you know, the person I spoke to said, we, 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 we do, we consider Turnberry part of the road. It will host an open. It's just a question of when, as long as the story was, there wasn't really room to get into that, but that, that was, that was something I learned in, in, in the course of the reporting. Um, you know, I think, I, I would think right. I wouldn't Ryder cup be right there, uh, alongside it that, uh, I think you would prize having a Ryder Cup as much as having an Open. Well, sure, and it's actually easier to buy a Ryder Cup. You know, the for whether it's U.S. Open or a British Open, you need a great golf course. For a Ryder Cup, you just need to be willing to to foot the bill and to have the infrastructure. And you know, Bedminster is a very nice golf course. I, I think it'd be it would be a very good Ryder Cup venue. You're you're, you're close to New York. Um, there is endless land around there for parking and. There's that second 18 holes they can use for corporate tents. And so, you know, as you know better than anyone, because you wrote a story for golf.com about about Trump and Pete Vivacqua, who runs a PGA of America, you know, they've they've played golf together since the election. Um, tell, tell me, uh, you, you have some insight of that relationship. I mean, how, how close are they? How, how easy is it for Vivacqua to get Trump on the phone? Well, I, my understanding is that, uh, that they talk uh, quite regularly and, uh, and I think Pete has uh, uh, very expertly uh, found a sweet spot where he can separate his own personal political feelings with what's best for the PGA of America. And uh, I think he is determined, and uh, I think he'd be hard-pressed to find someone to disagree with him, that when it's all said and done, and there's a lot of different ways to look at it, to the broad question, is Trump good for golf or not good for golf? People would say he's good for golf because um, he brings attention uh, to the game. And uh, uh, now the Ryder Cup and the U.S. Open don't really need more attention, but but women's golf does. And uh, as you and I both saw, when, when Trump was the de facto host of, uh, of an LPGA event at the Trump course in uh, West Palm Beach, that, uh, well, first off, the women loved it. it. It made for a better TV show. And Trump's uh, showmanship uh, just sort of uh, carried everything in, in, involved in that event, and to a, lim- to a lesser degree, but to some extent, we saw it uh, at, at the U.S. Women's Open um, as well. So uh, uh, I think that, that Pete has realized that, uh, that, that Trump is, uh, for everything he brings to it, uh, uh, good and bad, good and bad. Uh, that Trump's good for golf, and, and Alan, you you've addressed this in our conversations and uh, and in print as well. Um, what is it like for the LPGA players who have uh, personal, private, political feelings, uh, and then have a, a public position about Trump? How do they how do they walk that fine line, or, or what is your what is your sense of them their view of Trump, yeah, the golfer, and and Trump the politician? It's somewhat generational because the older LPG players love Trump because, as you say, that tournament, it was their season ender. It was the first LPG event to offer a million dollars to the winner. 
Trump rolled out the red carpet and, you know, it was, it was played in Palm Beach from 2001 to 2008. So the Natalie Gulbuses and the Christy Kerrs, you know, the, the women who are in their, their mid thirties or approaching their late thirties, that was a, a huge tournament for them. And, and Trump spent all week on the driving range and the putting green schmoozing people. And, and as you know, he has that, as you've noted, he has that ability to make you feel like he, uh, he's really paying attention to you. And, and that was a tour that was largely ignored. And so the older players have a lot of affection for him and he's offered them business advice. He's offered Natalie Golvis love, love life advice. Um, and that, that's a story that, I mean, it's an anecdote that's in our story, but, um, you know, after, after Ben Roethlisberger ended their romance and Golvis was saying publicly that, you know, he, he, he's the one who broke it off. You know, Trump calls her up and says, I never want to hear that again. From now on, you dumped him, not the other way around. And uh, some would call that lying. And Trump would call it marketing, right? And um, right. So anyway, um, those players, um, you know, they, they appreciate what, what, that he was a champion for, for women's golf. And now, was it self-serving because he wanted his golf course to be shown on TV? And did he want the accolades? Obviously, but he didn't have to do that. And they appreciate it. So, um a lot, a lot of these, you know, the players who have come up in, in the last five, seven years, they weren't part of that tournament. They don't really know Trump, and they read all his statements, and they heard the Access Hollywood tape. And um, only forty percent of the LPGA are actually American. You know, th- these are these are foreign-born workers on who are coming over here on various visas and other things to play golf here. And so I think a lot of them have made been made to feel unwelcome by Trump, and they don't have those warm, fuzzy feelings. So um, it is it is largely generational. Um, and what, what, what's your sense on, on the PGA tour? What, what, do, do you personally know any golfers who don't support, uh, uh, Trump as president? You know, that, what they did in the voting booth, that would be interesting. I mean, there's, there are, there are some PGA tour golfers who in, in private conversations have said disparaging things about him as, as president, but did they enjoy having, the Doral tournament, for sure. Did he help make that a bigger and better event? Yes. Did he turn? Do you think so? I'm not so sure about that. Uh, let, let, uh, let, let's say this: the the, the the Trump experience. Well, you you keep going. We'll go back to Doral here in a second. Well, I th- I mean I think that again he you know he brought that he brought that spotlight. He would he would helicopter into the driving range, and I, I didn't like the changes to the Blue Monster. I think that it made it a more boring test and that some of the electricity of that event was was lost but you know when it was the ford championship it was kind of a a mid-level event and when it became a wgc and in some ways it was the start of the season you know guys in early march it was it was began the run-up to the masters and a lot of the foreign players international players who largely skipped the west coast they, they would turn up at doral and it was um it just became a very important part of the schedule as a WGC on the Trump golf course. So, um, but then why didn't it survive? And what, what's your sense of, of why the BJ tour and Trump and Trump Doral, um, uh, parted ways? Well, it's for, it, it goes back to what the RNA guy was telling me. Tim Fincham could not get a corporation to spend $15 million on that tournament, knowing that Trump would be there to muddle the message. So it, it became Trump's tournament. And if you're, you know, Merrill Lynch or whatever, you, you put the money in to be the sponsor, it's still Trump's tournament. And nobody wanted wanted to have their brand diluted by his presence. And especially as the campaign began and he became even more of a controversial figure. So 
they just couldn't find anyone who wanted to be associated with with Trump or his property, which is how they deliciously wound up in Mexico City. Uh, you know, he, he couldn't build the wall fast enough to keep the, the PGA Tour from going south. But um, so, yeah, it's a mixed legacy for sure. I think Doral became a big deal. Um, but ultimately, it, he 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 got it he got it sent south of the border. So um, you know that 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 very important tournament. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I think it, it, in some ways it's a metaphor for everything about Trump. For in golf, it, it's really a, a prism through which you can you can see him and his personality. And there's there's he's done he's done some very good things for the game, and and he's caused some damage, and he's. He's built some nice golf courses and he's built some turkeys and he's he's said some very some very important things publicly whether it's the LPGA or he's made some statements that are outlandish and um, it's just who he is he's he's polarizing and he's he's contradictory and it all that plays out in in in, in the avenue of, of of his love for the game and his investments in the game. If you had the chance to. Uh... If you could give him truth serum and have an interview with him, you could only get in one question. What what would you want to ask him? Wow, what would the one question be? Um, gosh, that's a good one. One question. I think it would be tell me tell me your feelings of Michael Bamberger's golf game. <laughs> that would be utterly fascinating. <laughs> story about him and he and he wisely and he not wisely but he insightfully said that i quote wrote it with a lot of like uh which was at the time was very very uh, was very true and uh uh everything that's happened since then has been no one in the right mind uh uh would could could have predicted but i mean would you want to go down a uh political road with him would you want to uh, go down the russian road with him yeah, I mean, if 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 I had to ask a serious question, I think it would be, ha- have you taken any money from Russian banks or from other foreign banks to finance your golf purchases? I think that's an interesting question that has some larger ramifications, and yeah, that that would be the one we'd want a truthful answer on. Um, yeah, I think that would be interesting. But I'd be also interested to know, Don, when you say you shot sixty-eight, do you really believe it? Because if he really believes it then we have another set of issues here that we're dealing with uh, uh, that, that are also complicated or very complicated. Yeah, that's good stuff. Well, we possibly have exhausted the patience of our, of our listeners here. But before we oh, go, pleasure, well, no, you have, we're going to end it with one, with one great anecdote that uh, I've, I've heard you tell. I don't think it's ever been in print, but you're, you're writing with Trump in, in his Bentley, and he says, Okay. Well, there's a number of things that relate to this, but I think I know where you're going. Um, we're, I'm staying at Mar-a-Lago during one of those women's events, um, and uh, and we're and Trump and I are uh, driving out to the uh, to the West Palm Beach course uh, where where it has an event that's maybe uh, six miles away, if, you know, if that. And uh, at one point, a uh, a car. Uh, uh, want to get get by him, and uh, and he waved the car through, and uh, through an intersection, and the guy didn't acknowledge him, and, and uh, Trump said, 
but this is not the story that I'm going to tell Trump. So, oh, I hate that. You know, <laughs> the guy did the acknowledgement. <laughs> I thought it was funny. But anyway, um, Trump is funny. I don't know if he tends to be funny or not. But anyway, at one point he said, so we're sitting in the car and it's, you know, you can smell the leather. It's the most luxurious thing you've ever seen in your life. And uh, Trump says, uh, Michael, have you ever sat in, uh, in a more, more uh, luxurious uh, seat in all your life? And I said, uh, yes, Donald, actually I have. And uh, he said, where? And I said, on, on Arnold Palmer's uh, Citation 10. He said, Bamberger, you are such an asshole. <laughs> Which was, he was funny. And it was, it was, you know, it was fun to hang out with. There you go. That is the 45th president of the United States. If you want to know more about Donald Trump and his dealings in the game, I would direct you to this week's Sports Illustrated or to golf.com. Uh, where Michael and I have, have gone quite deep on the subject. Uh, and there's even some things that weren't covered in this podcast, amazingly. So, Michael, thank you as always for... Uh, see you at the PGA. I will see you at the PGA. And for those for those of you, the few who are left listening, thanks for your patience. Uh, we appreciate the support, and we will do this again soon. So, this is Alan Shipnuck for The Knockdown, signing off. <laughs>